This is season one of the Constitutional Commons podcast. This season is called The Founders of the Constitution. Your host, Rob Nadelson, is a nationally known constitutional scholar and author whose research into the history and legal meaning of the Constitution has been cited repeatedly at the U.S. Supreme Court by both parties and by individual justices. In this podcast, you will learn about the lives of leading founders and their unique contributions to the Constitution. Hi, I'm Rob Nadelson, and welcome to part eight of the Founders in the Constitution series. This is about Alexander Hamilton. It's easy, if not entirely fair, to explain Alexander Hamilton's relentless search for fame and power as the outcome of a life begun under very unfavorable conditions. He was born on January 11, 1757, an illegitimate child on the Caribbean island of Nevis, which was then a possession of the British Empire. His father deserted young Alexander's mother when he was only eight, and his mother died when he was 11. Somehow, he was apprenticed to a commercial firm where he showed an astonishing talent for the business. A good-hearted Presbyterian minister discovered him and sent him to a New Jersey grammar school. A year later, he was accepted by the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton University. When that institution wouldn't allow him to advance at his own accelerated pace, he enrolled in King's College, which is now Columbia University in New York City. While there, Alexander became wrapped up in revolutionary activities. He published two prominent political tracts. He taught himself the rudiments of military science. He organized an artillery company, and he received a captain's commission in the Continental Army. In 1780, he married Elizabeth Schuyler, which was a love match that admitted him to the heights of New York society. Hamilton became General George Washington's aide-de-camp, and in July of 1781, he sought and obtained a field command. He fought with distinction in the Battle of Yorktown. When hostilities ended, he returned to New York and passed the bar examination. That was in 1782. He then published the notes he had made in his studies for the bar. For many years thereafter, these published notes served as a textbook for aspiring New York attorneys. It took the young man a very short time to reach the peak of his profession. Now, if you've listened this far, it should be obvious by now that Hamilton was a genius. Aside from Benjamin Franklin, he was perhaps the greatest genius among all the prodigious intellects of the founders. In 1786, he was elected to the state legislature, and within a few months, his fellow lawmakers had appointed him to be a commissioner or delegate at the Annapolis Convention. In September of that year, the Annapolis Convention recommended that the states meet in Philadelphia the following May. That meeting became known as the Constitutional Convention. The New York legislature elected Hamilton as one of three commissioners to the Constitutional Convention. He was still only 30 years old. Most of the 12 attending states granted their commissioners full power to recommend a new political system, but New York and Massachusetts limited their delegates to proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. 
Hamilton found this frustrating because he wanted to do much more. On June 18, 1787, he delivered a day-long speech outlining his proposals. These proposals stretched the concept of Republican government to the breaking point. Hamilton advocated first a chief executive elected indirectly for life with an absolute veto over legislation. A bicameral legislature with an elected lower house balanced by a Senate indirectly elected for life. Appointment of state governors by the national authorities with each governor to enjoy an absolute veto over state laws. And finally, almost no restraints at all on the power of the central government. Hamilton thus located himself on the founding era political spectrum, which I outlined in this series first installment, as the most extreme of the high nationalists. The other delegates praised Hamilton's oratorical performance, but they didn't take his suggestions seriously. Furthermore, when the New York delegates decided how to cast the Empire State's votes on the convention floor, the other two delegates, who were more scrupulous about the limits on their instructions, usually overruled Hamilton. Frustrated, he left Philadelphia after the convention's June 29th session. He did not return until August 13. By then, his New York colleagues had abandoned the convention because it was headed in a direction they had no authority to go. This left New York entirely unrepresented. Hamilton had no authority to represent his state alone. So after August 13, he participated in the deliberations merely as a private citizen, and his contributions were fairly modest. He did successfully suggest that Congress as well as a convention of states, have power to propose constitutional amendments. And he served on the Committee of Style, which oversaw Gouverneur Morris's work in drafting the Constitution's final version. Hamilton's greater contributions came at the ratification stage. He recruited John Jay and James Madison to compose a series of newspaper op-eds designed to convince New Yorkers to elect pro-Constitution delegates to the state ratifying convention. Hamilton wrote 51 of the 85 essays, and he assisted Madison with a few others. All these essays were republished in a collection known as the Federalist or the Federalist Papers. The Federalist has justly become a classic in political theory, but its immediate influence was limited. The essays were written in a style too difficult to be popular. The public preferred the work of more readable authors, such as Hamilton's Philadelphia friend, Tench Cox. Moreover, the Federalist failed to persuade New Yorkers to elect a pro-Constitution majority to the state ratifying convention. In fact, the elections produced a more than two-to-one majority of opponents. As the late Clinton Rossiter, the great Cornell University political scientist, once observed, quote, the chief usefulness of the Federalist in the events of 1788 was as a kind of debater's handbook in Virginia and New York, end quote. At the New York Ratifying Convention, held in Poughkeepsie from June 17 to July 26, 1788, Hamilton was among the leaders of the pro-Constitution forces. 
he delivered several dazzling speeches early in the proceedings. On June 28, he emphasized the limited powers of the federal government and the exclusive prerogatives of the states. Unfortunately for him, though, John Lansing Jr., one of Hamilton's New York colleagues at the Constitutional Convention, was in the room at the time of Hamilton's June 28th speech. Lansing rejoined that Hamilton's present concern for state power was inconsistent with his centralizing comments in Philadelphia. This provoked controversy, which kept Hamilton quiet for the next two weeks and subdued his oratory after that. Apparently, though, he did assist in swinging the hostile majority into a 30 to 27 vote in favor of the Constitution. As Lansing suggested, Hamilton's public reassurances of how the Constitution limited federal power were not fully sincere. About the time the document became public, Hamilton wrote the following memorandum to himself. Here's the memo, quote, if the government is adopted, it is probable General Washington will be the President of the United States. A good administration will conciliate the confidence and affection of the people and perhaps enable the government to acquire more consistency than the proposed Constitution seems to promise for so great a country. It may then triumph altogether over the state governments and reduce them to an entire subordination, dividing the large states into smaller districts." End quote. Hamilton's celebrated achievements as our first Secretary of the Treasury served this wider goal that he expressed in that memorandum of converting a limited federal government into an entity far more powerful than the Constitution permits. For example, when trying to convince the public to ratify the Constitution, Hamilton strongly implied, this is in Federalist Number 17, that agriculture and manufacturing would be exclusively state rather than federal concerns. But after ratification was complete, he sang quite a different tune. In his 1791 report on manufactures, he advocated federal financial subsidies to favorite agricultural and manufacturing interests. To support his case, he cited the Constitution's Taxation Clause. That's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. The problem is that the Taxation Clause grants power only to, quote, lay and collect taxes to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Translated into modern English, this means that Congress has power to levy and collect taxes, but only to, first, store up reserves for future debt payment, or second, store up reserves for future spending, but third, any such spending must be for the public interest rather than for special interests. The general welfare language limits the purposes for which taxes may be levied. The clause doesn't authorize any spending other than spending needed to enforce the tax laws. Yet Hamilton claimed that this language leaves to, quote, to the discretion of the national legislature to pronounce upon the objects for which, which concern the general welfare, and for which under that description an appropriation of money is requisite and proper. In other words, he's saying that this clause gives Congress discretion 
to spend money on pretty much anything it wants to. Of course, this assertion is nonsense. If, if it were true, it would void many other provisions in the Constitution, among them the two-year limit on military appropriations. Hamilton's claim also contradicts the representations that the Constitution's advocates, including Hamilton, made to persuade the public to vote for ratification. Few of Hamilton's contemporaries accepted his novel constitutional argument. But as I described in my series of essays, how the Supreme Court rewrote the Constitution, eventually the Supreme Court did buy Hamilton's approach. In 1936 and 1937, the justices were looking for a way to uphold Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal spending programs. And so without much real analysis or examination of historical sources, they seized on Hamilton's thesis. That thesis remains the flawed constitutional foundation for most federal social spending today. After serving in the Washington administration, Hamilton created the Federalist Party. In 1800, he made the statesmanlike move of ensuring that his political opponent, Thomas Jefferson, was elected president over the unscrupulous Aaron Burr. Subsequently, Burr shot and killed Hamilton in a duel, that is on July 12, 1804. Hamilton's contributions to the Constitution's drafting, adoption, and meaning commonly are overestimated, but they were substantial enough to include him in, earn him inclusion in this series. America also owes him an immense debt of gratitude for his role in the Revolution and for helping President Washington place the new federal government on a secure foundation. Hamilton is buried in Trinity Church Cemetery in the Financial District of New York City. During the mercifully short time I worked for a Wall Street law firm, I often devoted part of my lunch hour to keeping Alexander Hamilton company. I'm Rob Nadelson, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the series, The Founders of the Constitution. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to like this in your podcast app and subscribe to be notified every time a new episode is released. For more information about the U.S. Constitution and this series, head over to thinkfreedom.org. Thanks for listening.